Welcome back to the Bad Movie Journalist Podcast, where we celebrate the wonder of mediocre art. I'm Christian, certified abrasics entitled son of Balaam. And I'm Connor, certified guy sitting on the floor of a closet. I didn't have a creative one this time, Christian. I was rushed for time. To be honest with you, I just pulled some words from this movie, and whether or not they make sense, I have no idea. This That, that could be a great statement. It could not. They probably make as much sense as anything else did in this movie. Exactly. Well, today we're talking about Jupiter Ascending, the 2015 space opera film written and directed by the Wachowski sisters. The film was produced by Grant Hill, famous for producing the Matrix sequels as well as V for Vendetta, and starring Channing Tatum, Mila Kunis, Eddie Redmayne, Sean Bean, and Douglas Booth. Jupiter Ascending grossed a total of $183.9 million against a budget of about $200 million, with about $47.4 million coming from North America and the other $136.5 million coming from the rest of the world, specifically performing well in Russia and Asia. Why? I don't know. I've noticed that like a fair amount of the movies that we do that are like perform really poorly like or, or really like poorly received so for some reason do really well in asia and like weird places like france and russia and then bomb here but then the movies that are well received by general audiences do well here but not well in international water so i don't know what that says about american film critics or international film critics but that is something that i did notice that like the lower the reception goes it seems the higher the international gate goes if you ever see anything like jurassic world for example, or even the Fast and Furious movies, those movies kill overseas. The Transformers movies, too. They do amazing internationally. Here, a lot of them are sometimes panned, except for the Fast and Furious movies, but a lot of other things, like the Transformers movies, for example, just do not do well here, and a lot of times we don't really consider them great filmmaking to begin with. Overseas, though, they love them for whatever reason. We get weird sequels, and everyone's like, why did we want this? Well, the rest of the world wants it in America. Just deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Turns out not everything revolves around just us. Anyways, the film was uh, Jupiter Ascending, when I say the film, was originally expected to gross anywhere between 21 and $23 million in its opening weekend. However, it bombed only managing $18.4 million its opening weekend and finished third at the box office behind American Sniper and the Spongebob movie, Sponge Out of Water. So that tells you a little bit uh, about how this movie was immediately perceived by audiences. But how about you tell us how this movie was perceived by critics? Yes, I will. I do want to say that that felt like a slight at an industry titan of a movie, SpongeBob the movie out, Sponge Out of Water, and I will not take criticism for that. As for reception from critics, so it holds a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes on about 268 reviews and a 38% audience score. Only holds a 40 out of 100 on 40 reviews from Metacritic, with the general consensus from critics being that this movie was pleasing to the eyes, but narratively befuddled with many beginning to note the trend of misses from the Wachowskis. Um, so they had kind of a bad run, a M. Night Shyamalan-level run, if you will, here with disappointing movies. Uh, Richard Ropert of the Chicago Sun-Times, a favorite of us here on the Bad Movie Journalists, uh, wrote, Where were the Guardians of the Galaxy when we needed them? If only they had prevented the disastrous atrocity that is Jupiter ascending from infiltrating Earth's movie theaters before it was too late. One of my favorite, actually, writers, Wesley Morris of then Grantland, uh, wrote, Upon exiting, my weary delight with Jupiter descending coexisted with pure bafflement, but I exited knowing that I had seen a movie no other filmmaker could have made. Andrew O'Hehir of Salon.com said, This movie plays like a super expensive 21st century version of one of those Star Wars knockoffs made around 1980 by people who weren't George Lucas. The bottom two, Christian, were positive reviews. That's very interesting, actually, that they actually called out that this movie was in the vein of a Star Wars knockoff, because that actually segues very perfectly into our general overview of this movie. I felt like this movie was a little bit of a Star Wars knockoff, except kind of boring. 
How did you feel about this movie? I felt like this movie was long and confusing. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the effects were really well done. I thought there was some interesting stuff about it, but it is impossible to follow what's going on. Before we dive into the bin, Christian, obviously we always have some fun facts here for the listeners. So uh, I will start us off that Channing Tatum wore a mouthpiece to change the shape of his lower jaw for this movie to more realistically portray his part canine character. Uh, Unfortunately, it prevented him from closing his mouth and caused trouble when he tried to talk. So you know, outweigh the, you know, weigh the pros and the cons there maybe next time. Um, But also something else that I thought was interesting was that several more longstanding Wachowski collaborators uh, were also on this film that have been with them since the Matrix films, and that included uh, production designer Hugh Gatup, visual effects supervisor Dan Glass, visual effects designer John Gaeta, standby prop man Alex Boswell, supervising sound editor Dane Davis, and costume designer Kim Barrett. Uh, So the Wachowskis really, I think they were really invested in this movie. They really brought back, like, the old crew, thought this movie was going to be, you know, like, a huge hit. Um, But unfortunately, it was not. It's funny that you point out about his mouthpiece in his lower jaw. I'll be honest, I did not notice this at all. Did did you pick up on that while watching it? I noticed it when he first came on screen because I was aware of the fact by the time I watched the movie. But after that, once like action started going, I didn't think he looked particularly canine or more. I didn't think his jaw, like it wasn't distractingly obvious. His jawline is a little weird if you look at it from the side, but that was it. Like you could have chalked it up to, you know, prosthetics or some like some you know some of that like fake hair that they put on this is no slight towards Channing Tatum because I do like the man overall but I always thought he kind of had a weird face and kind of a weird jaw I don't know so hearing this saying that they added a prosthetic to give him more of a canine shaped jaw is really strange to me because the man kind of has one of those faces to begin with yeah, he's got a very uh, square face. With Channing, you're, a, you're an incredibly beautiful man. Don't take that the wrong way. But I don't know if you needed to add sharpness to the features of Channing Tatum's face. Uh, but the only other interesting fact, Christian, that I wanted to bring up was that Eddie Redmayne won a Golden Raspberry for Worst Supporting Actor for this movie. This was in 2015, less than a year after he won the 2014 Academy Award for his portrayal of Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything. And then I believe in 2016, he does The Danish Girl, which he was also nominated for and was a very well-received role. So in between probably the two defining performances of his career, he throws in this bad boy. And I think we have some differing, well, not differing opinions, but differing reception of his performance here that we'll get into in a little while. Uh, But it was very interesting learning that he was critically panned and won, you know, an infamous award for this in between, you know, two of the best performances we've seen in the last 10 years. It's absolutely hilarious, especially because Eddie Redmayne is a fantastic actor, absolutely. And exactly like you were saying, between doing the theory everything, following that up with the Danish girl, also doing films like Les Mis, also now starring in the Fantastic Beasts movie, which I have mixed opinions on, but they're not his fault. I think Eddie Redmayne is really, really good all around. Don't know what he's doing here. Anyways, one more fun fact, and this is truly one of those little one of those little snack-sized fun packs, you know, is that the video game that her cousin is playing when she goes to his couch or whatever is Dark Souls 2, which is famously one of my favorite video game franchises. So obviously I immediately recognized that as they were playing a Dark Souls game. So that was pretty cool. I didn't notice that. I was glad you pointed that out afterwards because I did go back and, and rewind and, and make sure I saw that once I saw this in the in the notes here. Um, but the Dark Souls Bloodborne series, infamously difficult, famously fun. Um, glad they threw that tidbit in. But Christian, to quote a famous meme, now the real Dark Souls begins. Let's start talking about this movie. Why don't you lead us into the bin? What were some of the things about this movie that didn't work for you? Right off the top, and this is this movie's just absolutely glaring flaw is that the plot is beyond convoluted to the absolute nth degree. This isn't really a problem I think we've run into with a lot of the other movies we've done on this podcast where I feel like a lot of them have had 
relatively simple plots or the plot was at least kind of easy to track out. But Carter, what is this movie about? (laughs) Yeah, Christian, let's welcome to the viewers to this weekend's edition of What in the World Was That Plot? I don't have any idea what was happening in the in like the underlayers of this movie. I'm aware of what was happening on the top of it, in which they were trying to get the Earth from Natalie Portman, and Channing Tatum was trying to save Natalie Portman. I don't fully understand why the Earth was Natalie Portman's. She was, what, a genetic replica of their mother? And then one of the children tries to marry her, which is incestual and illegal maybe not on that planet but on earth it is i don't understand why natalie portman had claimed to earth i don't quite understand what any of their plots were besides eddie raymane's character i don't really know what was going on i don't know how this movie made it to the screen like this the screenplay for this movie was 600 pages long apparently at one point the average screenplay is somewhere between 90 to 125 pages. It's about a page a minute. And the Wachowskis wrote a 600-page screenplay and were like, yeah, we can drag that into two hours. Inexplicably, there's like really big lulls in this movie too. So it's not paced well. The plot is just wild and all over the place, which is a shame because on the top level, the premise is not the worst thing in the world. It's actually kind of interesting. So, Connor, it's actually really funny that you say Natalie Portman because that's actually... A fun fact about this movie that we didn't even put here, but side fun fact, Natalie Portman was originally cast to play uh, Jupiter, uh, but it was actually played by Mila Kunis. But no worries, I completely understand. This is definitely one of those Phantom Menace, Natalie Portman, Kira Knightley situations. Real easy to mix them up. We, we call that in the business a Freudian slip, guys. I definitely knew that fact beforehand. You see, and you know, it just my my wires got crossed. That's all that happened, right? Christian, please continue with the plot. Yeah, it's okay. Hey, it happens. We've all been there. I've had one or two of these Freudian slips you discuss you you're discussing here. But my biggest issue with this movie, like I was saying, is that the plot is just obscene. It's throwing just jargon at you constantly. It's throwing exposition that is just not needed at all in this movie at you constantly it's almost beating you over the head with well we're the abrasacs and we come from this place and then our mother she started and she founded a civilization by doing this and this is what our society does it's kind of the same problem that the phantom menace has where you're going into a star wars movie thinking that you're going to see i don't know a star wars movie and then it spends Half the movie talking about trade embargoes. Why? Why are we doing this? And this is a very similar feeling I had to this movie. And the best way for me to compare it in my mind would be, imagine if you were going into A New Hope for the first time in 1977, and they spent the first 45 minutes of the movie explaining where the Wookiees come from and what planet Kashyyyk is. And then just launching right into Star Wars after that. People would be like, what is going on? Why do we have this? And that was kind of my feeling throughout this entire movie. And the the thing is about that with The Phantom Menace was that you already had three movies and you already had an established back lore and an extended universe and all this sort of stuff by the time we built to The Phantom Menace. So you could kind of get away with that because we already understood that universe I don't understand anything about this universe. I think this might have been something where if you had taken this and built it out into a trilogy, maybe by the end of it we understand everything going on if you take the time to flesh out the worlds and those relationships and everything. But if you're going to try and jam a trilogy's worth of stuff into one movie and build a whole universe around it, there was no way we were ever going to understand that. And one of the notes I actually wrote down was there's a lot of talk about transition of titles for a movie that is supposed to be an action movie. It's crazy. It just doesn't stop the entire time. Like I said, it's just, it's, it's almost relentless with the amount of just exposition this movie's throwing at you. You don't need any of that. It, easy fix for this movie is take out 40% of all this info dump it has in it because it's, it's just too much for one movie. This movie feels very bloated because of it the bad thing for me when i left this movie was that 
I think that's really like the only like true sin of this movie is that the plot is just far too convoluted. Like the plot's not awful by any means. I've watched movies with much worse plots than this, but there was too much going on. And if they had just like streamlined that sort of plotting and how the pace of the movie and everything like that I think this would have been a much much better movie because a lot of the things that we normally pan like you know the lead characters acting and the effects and all that stuff were not actually that bad no not at all I think this this is actually one of the easier movies to just make better immediately either take some of those plot elements away or extend it make this a four or five part movie franchise make this a trilogy make this a show something because there's either too much content here for this and it needs to be expanded upon or the content needs to be just cut back drastically and just fixing that right there you have an immediately a much better movie moving on to some other things that i didn't think were great about this movie and i know we disagree a little bit here but i don't feel like this movie is excellently casted. I think it's a little bit miscast in just about every way. I like Chatting Tatum, I like Mila Kunis, and I like Eddie Redmayne, but there's no reason to me why they have to play those characters. I mean, Channing Tatum, I think, is a good example of this, where he is a decent actor, he's good at playing a tough guy, he's a pretty funny actor, but in this movie, he kind of needs to play a more reserved action hero where he's a little bit more thinking, a little bit more sensitive in a way. And I don't think he's doing a great job at that. Yeah, so I don't know if I think this movie is miscast or not, but I think that my issue that I took with the acting is that Kunis and Tatum are very good actors and they're very strong professional leads. But the problem is, is that when you have a script and the writing that this movie had, it almost becomes more glaring when you have professionals pulling it off the way that they were. Like when you have a, a character like Eddie Redmayne in this movie, who we'll talk about later in my version of The Beauty, um, because I, I can't get enough of this wild performance he did. But when you have a character like Eddie Redmayne's that's just off the wall like a lunatic and the character is being portrayed like an off the wall lunatic. Like you almost feel like that was meant to happen or so like you can talk yourself into being like, that's a character choice. But when Mila Kunis, who is this incredible actress is well-respected, has delivered so many amazing performances is giving a monologue about how she has no dating luck and she thinks maybe it's her genetics. And then maybe infers that she's into dogs because she's into this dog man. And then when she's delivering that terrible, terrible monologue and trying to do it as professionally as humanly possible, to me, it just becomes even more glaring that the writing in this movie was awful. Like when we watched The Happening and Mark Wahlberg was just hamming it up all the time, it was difficult to figure out what was the writing and what was Mark Wahlberg. But in this movie, it was so evident that it was the writing because the acting was, you know, just solid and fine across the board that it stuck out a lot more to me. Yeah, I think I'm going to change my point here a little and come over to your side more on that. I think you're right, actually. It's not so much actually the performers as much as what they're performing. And what you're mentioning about Mila Kunis going into this monologue, I ask you, which monologue? Because I counted at least six different instances of her complaining to a different character about her love life. It's, and I want to have a conversation real quick about Mila Kunis' character, actually, while we're on the topic, because I saw a thing that this movie was praised in a lot of circles for deviating from the typical female action film stereotypes, which I think they do. Like, it's they, like she's not a damsel in distress by any means, and she's not, like, a sexy sidekick to Channing Tatum. She is actually, like, the main character of the movie, kind of coming into her role as this majestic figure, I guess. But is Jupiter a good character? 
Like, I get I get the point of her being royalty, but she spends much of the movie just being a pawn in the abdominal thoraxis' family's plan. She just immediately falls in love with Channing Tatum character, seriously. Like, I don't... They barely interact more than, like, some conversations and, you know, a couple four-line back-and-forths. And then she's professing her love for him at one point. And then she's pretty much just defenseless the whole movie. Like, right up to the end where she kicks Eddie Redmayne's ass, she pretty much just wallows around and then at one point literally just says, I want to go home. Like, I didn't perceive her as a particularly strong character for 90% of the movie, so I don't really understand where people were coming from praising that character. I agree with you 100%. I'm not a woman, famously, but... Only speaking to my experience watching this movie, I did not read this as a strong character at all. I don't understand at all how this was a strong. And if someone knows, please correct me. If a woman out there in the audience can give me more insight on this, please let me know. Because I just did not see the entire movie. She came across as something more along the lines of Cinderella, maybe? Or some sort of old romance movie where this girl can't find love she's always talking about how she scares good guys away and she can only attract bad guys and she believes in love and she falls in love with pretty much the first guy that she sees at this point as far as we know her and that's Channing Tatum and then she's willing to marry that other guy just because she asked so the entire movie she's kind of just being a pushover yeah she has that turn on the end but that you still have to go through probably an hour 40 of her just being submissive to everyone else on screen and falling in love with the first guy she sees in the movie and constantly going on and on about how she can't find the right man or what she believes on love and it's it's just too much it just it it's just it's just too much. <laughs> no, I think I think an important point you pointed out there too was that we are two males, right? So if we are incorrect about that, please do let us know. But from my perception, I you know saw Mila Kunis, this great actress, cast in you know the lead character in an action movie, and then read that she bucks all these stereotypes, and I was like, this is awesome. We've openly on this pod slandered movies for basically disregarding women in their plots and I was so excited to see her play this like great female lead and then it just fell so flat to me and maybe like if there was a sequel to this movie she comes out as this like badass she comes out as this buccaneering badass and that would be awesome but we don't get that we get this like 10 minute fight scene at the end where she finally stands up for herself and you know fun character arc but I wish she was like that the whole time it would have been so much more rewarding to me. I agree with you, and this goes for anyone out there. If you want to see strong female leads in action movies done right, go watch Aliens or Terminator, where you have characters like Ellen Ripley, who is just the exact type of character that you want to see going from not being strong to being strong by the end of the film. And same thing with Sarah Connor, where starts out helpless, and then by the second movie is by all intents and purposes, a complete ass kicker. So that's how you do it right. I'm not sure what they're doing here in this movie. No, it's not It's not ideal. And like I said, it could have set up something great for sequels because she does make a turn at the end. But for, like you said, an hour 40 in this movie, it's just, it. it's kind of helpless, basically, is the way she comes off. That is all I really have for the bin now. Is there anything else you want to add before... We move on to the beauty. No, let's move into the beauty, and let's start off with the thing that you wanted to include in the bin, Christian, which is Eddie Redmayne's performance. But I'm putting it in the beauty, my friend. As previously advertised on this podcast, I am a huge fan of overacting. I am a huge fan of when everyone, anyone so comes in, commits to a bit, chews on the fat... Emperor Palpatine in every movie in the Star Wars franchise. I can't get enough of this. And Eddie Raymane comes into this movie off the back of an Oscar and just throws ridiculous heat this whole movie. He is HBK overselling for Hulk Hogan at SummerSlam, flipping over the ropes. This is the most 
inexplicable character performance I have seen in any movie we've done for this podcast. He's so bad, and it's so funny that I, I guess ironically, loved it. I was, he's supposed to be the big bad guy, but I was laughing at basically every emotional turn that he gave. Anytime he raised his voice... I laughed hysterically. Anytime he did this like weird horse whisper, I laughed. I could not wait to see more of this insane character portrayal. He's uh, c- just crazy the entire time. And for me, I would have put him in the bin because I don't think it's a great performance. But I completely see what you're saying because this performance is puzzling. It is hilarious. And I don't think... It's a bad performance. Like, I don't feel like Eddie Redmayne was phoning this one in. It's just crazy. It's a strange choice. He looks strange. His outfit is strange. The way he's talking is strange. His movements are strange. Everything about this character is just very, very weird. Just down to his extremely hoarse whisper that is almost inaudible at scenes to when he's throwing his hands up kind of robotically like he doesn't have full control of his limbs to looking Mila Kunik's character in the eye almost teary-eyed like about to sob almost from the speech he's giving it's just it's just all around crazy I don't even know what to make of this man it's such the opposite of a phone-in performance. It's the exact opposite of Liam Neeson in every movie we've watched on this podcast. He came into this movie and the Wachowskis said, we need you to be the big bad. And he just committed to this one idea and would not let go. You could, like, You can tell this wasn't something that he got criticism on on set or construction or anything like that he had this one idea and they said go for it and he went a thousand percent for it and it's awful i'm not gonna sit here and tell you it's a good performance eddie i i love eddie redmayne as an actor this is not a good performance by any means he deserved that golden raspberry but i can't tell you that i wasn't entertained and in this movie of convolution no one is doing anything close to what he's doing he's the only one who's really trying i I mean we we said i mean and and i think that everyone else in this movie is doing a fine job but eddie redmayne that man is giving a performance (laughs) and that i gotta respect this is a 200 million dollar blockbuster and eddie redmayne is treating it like it's a b-roll action movie that he's just got to come over the top on he's in like return of the living dead and everyone else is in star wars and i just can't tell you how much i appreciate that sort of commitment yeah i i want to know i want to know what was going on in his head why he chose this did he just want to make something crazy in between these two hits we'll never know i want to have a conversation with eddie about just why he decided to do literally everything we see on screen in this movie oh god i would love that i guarantee you eddie redmayne is just not willing to talk about this movie he probably is trying to put it as far out of his mind as humanly possible um but moving on to the visuals of this movie I think we disagree a little bit on this. I thought the visuals were really, really cool. Um, I thought, like, the futuristic city designs that they show, like, the overlays were really beautiful. The gadgets and their effects looked really cool. That action scene in Chicago is really, really long. Fun fact, it actually took, like, six collective months to shoot. (laughs) They had to film, like, different parts every day. But I thought it was incredible looking. It's way too long, but incredible looking. Um, There were some parts, like, towards the end where... Channing Tatum is trying to bring speed skating back that it's very obvious he's on ropes in front of a green screen but for a movie that's a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes when I can only point that out once or twice I consider that a success this movie to me was visually very nice yeah I think I think that's a good way to put it I do have some issues with the visuals and it's more so that there was a couple scenes that I felt it looked pretty obvious they were in front of a green screen. Other than that, I think it looked pretty solid. I think a lot of the aliens look pretty cool. There are alien dragon people in this movie where, again, if you've learned anything about me throughout this podcast, is that alien dragon people are the exact type of thing that I want to see in my movie 100% of the time. 
oh, we're, we're making another Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, throw Alien Dragon people in there, and I am just, I will buy my tickets right now. So, some of those visuals looked really good. I also thought the sit, like the actual planets, once you got to where Eddie Redmayne's character is living, I thought all that stuff looked really, really good. I just had a couple things here and there, more so in the beginning, more than anything that I didn't think looked amazing. I will say, I've got to respect that they decided to give Channing Tatum the Shadow the Hedgehog skates from the Sonic Adventure games, because I saw that and I thought, Wow, they ripped those skates right out of Sonic. You know what's funny is that they make like a point of saying that he surfs on them, right? Like they make a huge point of making sure that that's what they call his movement on that. And then half the time where he's doing it, he's literally roller skating. Like he looks like he's like there's one part where he's char in the I think it's the first scene we see him in where he's charging up and then just starts quad skating essentially across down a hallway and I was like, that's a choice, man. That is an artistic choice right there to make your your big hero skate across a hallway. It's definitely something. Also, if you didn't think we were going to wrap back around for 10 seconds to talk about how you want to recast Shawshank Redemption with dragon people, who, who do you feel would be best represented as a dragon person in Shawshank Redemption? Are we recasting Tim Robbins as a dragon? I, I, I'm saying you go Tim Robbins, you make him a dragon person. Not Morgan Freeman, though. You leave him the same because we need, we need to have a straight man in this universe. But everyone else, dragon people. I actually want to go the opposite way, right? I want to make one dragon person, but I just want it to be Brooks, and I want no one to bring it up. <laughs> it, it's just not addressed the entire movie. The movie plays out exactly the same. Just now, Brooks is a dragon alien. Brooks, the the kind old man in the library, is just a dragon person. I'm 100% here for that remake. I was 100% behind these people, too, because I wrote down flying dragon alligator and lizard in a leather coat as the descriptions for these aliens. So I was 100% in behind those people. Um, one other thing I did want to talk about in the beauty was something that Mila Kunis actually brought up when she was talking about this movie, uh, which was that it has underlying themes about the evils of capitalism and consumerism, which you know, maybe don't shine through originally when you watch it because it plays out sort of like a WWE Vince McMahon, like family drama between the three, um, you know, Thorax people. I, I really don't know their last name. I'm sorry. When you kind of think about it that way and, you know, knowing the cur current state of the world here in 2020, I thought it was a fitting plot point to revisit because I do think a lot of shades of that shine through. I think so too. That's actually one of the cooler things about this movie that I really like that Eddie Redmayne was explaining to me, like, you know, in one of those final scenes where he's saying, your species, the Earth, it exists for consumption. Everything is consumption. You guys are only here. That way we can farm your bodies and turn you into energy. That way we can use. To be alive is to consume. And that's a pretty cool idea, especially in today's day and age where you know, capitalism pretty much rules our society. Consumerism is everything. So I thought that was a pretty cool and smart plot point uh, that worked pretty well. The other thing I was going to say was that the soundtrack to this movie, pretty awesome. I actually really liked the soundtrack to this movie. It might be one of my favorite soundtracks that we've seen out of any movie we've done. It sounded almost Star Wars-y, not quite that John Williams polish to it, but I did sound I did think it sounded really really good overall and I would probably throw it on listening in the background. I definitely thought it was an interesting take and it it shines through in a lot of the action scenes where you we've seen a lot of these action movies we've watched where it, when you get to fight scenes and stuff like that it's sort of like you know guitars and rock in the background and it fits well but this movie almost had like what would you call it like a choir at points doing it it reminded me of like when you'd fight like really really tough bosses in like video games how they have this like really grand epic sort of like orchestral music in the background and it really like sets the mood as being different from everything else in the game that's the feeling i got from the soundtrack shining through in a lot of like the big action sequences it's very grand and it's very different from everything else we've ever heard and I noticed it, like, right away. And at first I was like, I don't know if I like that I noticed the soundtrack this much. But as it kept going, 
it it is very very well orchestrated and fits in really well yeah so you know actually and so everyone knows the person who actually did the composing for this music is michael giacchino who is actually one of my favorite composers he's responsible for doing the score for movies like the incredibles for example has done a soundtrack for rogue one doctor strange super eight dawn of the planet of the apes spider-man far from home the upcoming film the batman and has even done some video games such as medal of honor and call of duty so michael giacchino is a fantastic composer through and through genuinely one of my favorite working these days yeah no his work is is very very good i didn't know he was on all those movies and you know definitely a very very respectable roster right there christian before we move along i do want to give you the official that guy roster um, it's very short this time. First, you pointed one out, and I don't know if he counts as a that guy because he's a main supporting actor, but Sean Bean is in this movie. Um, Sean Bean was a that guy for me because I didn't recognize him right away. I had to look him up. Um, obviously, he's a main supporting actor that you uh, noted that you enjoy very much. James Darcy's in this movie as Maximilian Jones, um, which is Jupiter's dad who dies strangely immediately from a gunshot wound to the stomach like he gets shot and is immediately dead i don't know if that's how that works he was in master and commander which is a great movie from the early 2000s and then i don't know if this counts as a that guy but vanessa kirby is is in this movie she's the blonde friend um who i guess is sort of abducted by the keepers and then has her memory wiped she's only in it for about 30 seconds vanessa kirby is obviously very famous nowadays for being in netflix's the crown as well as taking a role in mission impossible and also vanessa kirby is the love of my life so i wanted to also give her a shout out and vanessa kirby is genuinely incredible i agree with you 100 i didn't even notice she was in there that's awesome i do want to say sean bean doesn't die in this movie Hey, that's awesome. Good for you, Sean. Good for Sean Bean getting all of that script money. Anyways, Connor, I think that is a, probably a pretty good time that we transition here into The Cell. So, Connor, why don't you sell me on this movie? Christian, let's begin some transactions. This movie doesn't belong as a movie. I would just like to note that up front. I think this movie would be a fantastic 10-part Netflix series. Maybe 8-part. You can go back and forth on what's the proper length for a Netflix series for the rest of this podcast if we wanted, but it belongs to something longer than this. However, this is a movie. It's a very long movie with a lot going on, but it's grand, it's wild, and it's a movie unique to the Wachowski mind. Which I noted that uh, one of the reviews earlier said, like, this is a, f- a film no other filmmaker could make. And that's definitely true. Like, if you enjoy the Wachowski brand of entertainment, you'll probably find a lot of stuff that you like about this movie. It's over the top, it's epic, it's wild, there's a lot of stuff going on, it's very confusing. But sometimes I think these worlds are worth visiting and exploring even if it doesn't live up to its potential. There's a lot of stuff here that I think is interesting enough to engage someone for at least part of this. And to be honest with you, I'd like someone else to take a look at this to see if this is something that we could remake in the future, because it is an interesting world that I do think it's worth at least diving into. I agree with you. I have one fix for this movie that I don't know if you'll agree, but for me, I think would take it from being a movie that is not great and to being a movie that is just absolutely fantastic and for me that is make this an animated movie i think that this as a cartoon film would work phenomenally look at titan ae look at treasure planet which is in my opinion probably the most underrated disney film that exists Those movies do space opera excellently. Why? Because they're animated and you don't have to worry about someone overacting or how an alien space monster looks or even if you're dumping exposition on someone because it's a cartoon and that gives you a different pretense going into it. I think if this was an animated film, this would genuinely be an awesome movie. I do think animated would be interesting because it takes a lot of pressure, like you were saying, off of certain parts of the movie. I'm not sure if it fixes, like, the convoluted plot part. You might have to, like, draw it out, but it definitely would 
would solve a lot of some of the issues that plague this movie throughout. I think it would, I think I really think it would just make it a lot more fun. It would kind of just make things a lot more bouncy and it would help while you're giving those long exposition parts some more eye candy to look at so it's not just two human beings talking. You have some really fun, creatively drawn characters talking. Maybe you can have them moving in a fun way while they're communicating. I think it just would just open the doors for what this movie is trying to go for. And it really, really reminded me of films like Treasure Planet, for example, that haven't really had too much spotlight, but are kind of similar in a strange way. What's interesting, too, about that, now that you mentioned that, is that that would probably, and the Wachowskis would never do this, but it would take a lot of the pressure off of this movie of being super serious which again I don't think they would ever do with this movie but it, if you made this movie a fun romp around as opposed to like a serious like space opera action movie if a lot of the points that we kind of like honed in on as being nonsense and stuff like that would probably be stuff you could skate over and we wouldn't really mind that much so so that that that's my take on an easy fix but some more things to talk about in this cell are this movie's going for something really grand in scale. This is a space opera through and through. It is really gunning to be something like Star Wars. It's gunning to be this just massive, big action, big music, giant plot kind of film. And I think that's cool because we don't get a lot of that, really. This is definitely even more so than when we talked about Clash of the Titans. I think this is even a smaller genre because what films make it in the space opera genre? You have Star Wars and you have Guardians of the Galaxy. Can you name another space opera franchise? I couldn't have named Guardians of the Galaxy. I didn't even consider that a space opera, but now that you've said that, that's a that's a fair point. So you don't have a lot of this. I, th- I think... This is another one of those examples where if you were to make a list of greatest space opera films of all time, after you listed out Guardians 1 and 2 as well as the entire Star Wars catalog, this would probably make the top, I don't know, 15 if you were going by that math. God, that's that's horrifying to think about. I'm going to spend the next two minutes trying to see if I can find a list of the best space opera movies of all time. Um, but I mean, you're probably right about that. I think an interesting thing too, noting that, um, the Wachowskis are in development of the matrix four. I don't know what the plot of the matrix four is going to be, obviously, but I think what's interesting is like, this is the effects and sort of like the world that they were trying to build on 2015. And this might be like a sneak peek into some of the stuff that they try and bring into the the next two Matrix movies. I think only one of them is doing it, so when I'm saying both of them, that might be uh, stepping out a little bit. But I think that if they bring some of this otherworldly like stuff that they kind of tapped into here that they didn't have the ability to do in 1999, that the, the new Matrix movies could look really cool. They might be a mess plot-wise, because the Matrix movies were always a bit of a mess plot-wise, if we're being honest. But I think at least that would be something that people would want to see based on effects alone and christian also interstellar famously a space opera Oof, yeah yeah that, you're kind of right there but i only added one so your point still stands yeah i mean it, it took us 10 minutes to think of another one <laughs> so it 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 doesn't you don't get a lot of this too often essentially but like you're saying we also don't have a lot of wachowski stuff to work off either so if you are a fan of their works if you are a fan of the matrix films you'll probably like this i think a lot of the kind of like tech stuff if it wasn't so overly explained would be kind of cool the idea of having humans spliced with dogs to (laughs) i don't know i was gonna say that's cool but now that i say it out loud it's ridiculous anyways channing tatum's half dog i guess that's cool (laughs) it's it's a I appreciate the Wachowskis tried something. Like, we watch a lot of movies for this pod where we're like, boy, they're they're hitting the thing. When we watched Clash of the Titans and we're like, boy, they're hitting a lot of uh, a lot of cliches here and they're doing a lot of basic stuff. I appreciate that the Wachowskis are like, what if we made half-human, half-dog guy be the main character? And then what if we made Mila Kunis kind of turned on by that? Listen, it's not my cup of tea, but take your shot, Wachowskis. At least you're trying stuff. Hey, don't forget also that he also got 
wings after that as well. <laughs> I forgot about the the wing she was also very obviously into. Listen, I'm not here to kink shame Mila Kunis's character, Jupiter Jones. Go for whatever, go for whatever floats your boat. But it's definitely an interesting choice to write into a 200 million dollar space opera. Very strange all around. Well, that's all I have for this sell. Is there any? Are there any other final purchases you want to make, Connor? Nope, Christian. I think that was every reason that people should go watch Jupiter Ascending. Why don't you, my friend, lead us into our famous final question? Oh, yes, our famous final question. Now we got an FFQ coming your way. Hashtag FFQ. So, Connor, if you could be like Kane Wise, who is Channing Tatum's character, we never even touched on the fact that Kane Wise is an absurd name for a person. Whatever. If you could be like Kane Wise and have your DNA spliced with another animal, what would it be? Christian, I'm just going to point out we didn't touch on that because that's the least insane name in the entire movie. Yeah, you're completely right. But if I could have my DNA spliced with another animal. So I thought about this long and hard, and I'm going to go with the inexplicable answer that first came to my mind, and it's an owl. I don't have any defense for this. I don't have any advantages of being an owl. Uh, When I think of an owl, I think of this video of a barnyard owl that I saw being scared by thunder for the first time, just kind of like walking around in a cave. So I don't really know why this came to my mind. Maybe this is like sort of like a therapeutic moment where I'm going to reveal something about my childhood through this sort of thing and people are going to point out my relationship with my parents or something. I don't have a good reason for it, but I want to be part owl. I like that answer. Owl is something really out of left field that I probably wouldn't have ever considered so that's awesome yeah i went through a lot of options i was thinking like what if i could be part elephant what if i could be part horse there's so many advantages to being part cheetah lion all these sorts of like wild hunter animals and every time i was like i really just think i could be part owl and it would be cool and again i don't have any advantage i don't have any reason that i think it would be a good idea but i'm gonna be part owl Hey, no one would be able to sneak up on you because if someone tried to approach you from behind, you'd be able to turn your head around real quick. Also, I'd have the biggest eyes, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I have famously terrible eyesight. So maybe that'll help that. Hey, maybe there you go. So for me, I actually just chose this, but I think I would go octopus. And the reason being that octopus are... Or octopuses are some of the smartest animals on Earth. We still don't fully understand them. A lot of people think that their DNA does not even come from this planet. Octopuses have been around longer than trees on this Earth have been around. So they're all around just completely fascinating animals. They're really, really smart. They're really, really good at getting in and out of small places. A regular-sized octopus can fit through a hole the size of a glass. Uh, octopuses are great at camouflaging with their environment. They're great hunters. They have their brains sometimes hidden in one of their limbs. That way, if they're attacked by an animal, they won't immediately die. They have multiple hearts. Just the list goes on and on of why octopuses are just some of the most fascinating animals on earth and i think that i would benefit a lot from having some of those uh, little octopus genes that is an outstanding choice but christian i do want you to spend 30 seconds walking us through what you would look like mixed with an octopus do you have like regular human arms and then like weird tentacles coming out of your back do you have somewhere where you get to squirt ink out does your head look like an octopus head what are are you purple or blue? I'm colorblind. Are you whatever color an octopus is? How does this mesh come? You know, I'm glad you asked because I think that I would want to have an octopus head. Just give me that just big old dome and the rest of my body be look normal, looks like a person body, but I don't actually have any bones. I'm just kind of moving by muscles, kind of like a liquefied human. Like, remember in Harry Potter where he breaks his wrist and they just take the bones out of his wrist? And 
I'm still scarred from that. I saw that when I was a kid, and I've thought about that every night for 20 years. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to look like that. I just, <laughs> the mental picture of your body just... This is immediately what I pictured. You getting into a fight and just collapsing into a ball, essentially, on the floor and just rolling around some guy's feet and <laughs> tripping <laughs> Like, oh my god, your body would just be silly putty. Yeah, there we go. But also, really smart silly putty. Don't uh, don't discount the fact that this silly putty has the IQ of Albert Einstein. I'm just picturing, like, someone going to stab you now, and, like, it just going straight into you, and you're like, I moved my heart into my thigh, and just punching the guy in the face. <laughs> The endless opportunities for this to be the greatest action hero of all time. So after we make our scene kid superhero drama, we make Octopus Lad, where you fight crime and you're also just a boneless sack of, I don't know, just squishy bits. Didn't we also, like, make a cinematic crossover where the Fast and the Furious were gonna fight the Avengers at one point? Really, our final questions just always descend into these weird franchise opportunities for for anyone to to come pilfer off of our our podcast. So we need to start using this platform more wisely and start trademarking some of these ideas. I think absolutely. I I think we I think we should too. Hey, and if anything, always remember that Kevin Smith got the idea for Tusk from one of his podcasts that he was recording and joked that making Tusk would be a great idea. Then he made Tusk. Turns out, wasn't a great idea to make. But he still made it, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I I appreciate the hustle there. As always, MGM, uh, Columbia, Disney, give us a call. Obviously, we've got some great ideas to bring to your screens. Absolutely. I'm, I'm waiting for a call, Columbia Pictures. Yeah, exactly. Columbia Pictures. I don't know why we're villainizing Columbia Pictures at the end of this podcast, but congratulations. You've just entered into a rivalry with the bad movie journalists. We'll take them on. It's us versus Columbia. We're going to win, guys. Scrappy upstart right here. We're the we're the Yanks in Hamilton. We're going to take down the Empire. Well, Connor, I think that's all that we've got for today. So how about you uh, sign us off here? Christian, like a cold beer... On a hot summer day here in August, you stay frosty, my friend. Stay frosty, Connor.